Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Birth Lounge Podcast. I'm so excited to have you back today. It's been a while since I have made an episode, but this one is a super special one because it is our 200th episode. Yay! Wow, I cannot believe I have been doing this for four years. We have 200 episodes, 200 times that you and I get to hang out And you get to learn how you can have a better birth. Not to mention all of the amazing guests that I have had over the years. I just want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who has been part of this podcast, who has listened along, who has given us reviews, who has shared it, who has come on as guests. Thank you so much. You guys are really the reason that this podcast is what it is. And in even more exciting news, the birth lounge doors are currently open. So if you have been looking for unbiased, data-driven, evidence-based childbirth education that is delivered in a non-judgmental way, uh, this is it. I am going to help you fill your toolbox so that you can have an informed and confident birth. I want you to understand your rights as someone who is having a baby. I want you to understand your options when it comes to each stage of labor. And I'm going to equip you with the words and the data that you need to have conversations with your provider to help get your birth preferences heard. So many people walk away with birth trauma and the one of the primary reasons is they feel like they've been silenced along the way or they, they don't feel like they were listened to um, in their birth journey. And so I'm going to teach you how to avoid that because I'm actually going to help you um, know how to have these conversations. You're going to know how to facilitate these conversations in a way uh, that gets your voice heard. So uh, thebirthlounge.com, you can join right now. Um, today's Wednesday, so you only have about two more days to join. Doors close on September 9th, and then they won't be open again until the end of the year. Um, This really is like a revolutionary childbirth education. It is not meant to persuade you one way or the other. Rather, it is meant to give you all of your options, lay them out for you, and you get to choose which ones feel 
most aligned to you. This is appropriate for anyone who is having a baby in the home setting, in a birth center setting, or a hospital setting. Also appropriate for first-time parents or people who are having second and third-time babies if your first and second um, did not go well or didn't go how you wanted it to go. Or maybe there are just places that you want to improve and you don't know how to do that. The birth loans can teach you how. All right, you guys, I am um, going to stop rambling about it. I just love it so much because I get to see so many people have like the most beautiful births. They're gentle, they're calm. People say it's their dream birth. They say they couldn't have, you know, mapped it out better if they had done it themselves. Like this turned out way better than I could have even imagined. Like that's what I want everyone to say about birth. And that's why I love the birth launch so much. So, okay, anyway. Happy 200th episode. In this episode, we are actually going to talk about the number one requested thing that people ask of me literally on a daily basis. And that is, how do I have this conversation with my provider? How do I tell my provider I want this? How do I make sure that this doesn't happen to me in birth? How do I make sure I do get this or I, I do have the opportunity to experience that in labor? Like, How do I basically feel heard in labor? And so I'm actually going to step you through um, five different conversations, and these are going to be the most common that you come across being a pregnant person, and here they are. How do you decline unnecessary cervical checks? How do you push in some other position that's not on your back? How do you decline the late ultrasounds in pregnancy? So in that 36 to 42-week mark, um, how do you advocate for intermittent fetal monitoring versus continuous fetal monitoring. And then finally, how do you say no to an IV in labor, to that HEPLOC that they wanna put in in triage? Um, so let's just dive right in. Let's, let's circle back. We're gonna start with cervical exams. Now, a couple things to th keep in mind when we're talking about cervical exams. First of all, they don't tell us very much except where you are in this exact moment in labor, right? They are not a crystal ball. They can't tell us how much longer you have in labor. They can't tell us um, when you're going to go into labor. They can't tell us um, anything really other than here's where we are in this moment. Um, and if that looks like progress from the last time we've checked in, great, but it also may not. Um, they can be super useful if your body continues to make forward progress, but cervical exams can also work against you negatively mindset-wise if you are getting numbers that are not encouraging to you. You know, and it also, we have to hold space for the, the fact that with each cervical exam you get, including the ones that are in pregnancy, you do increase your risk for infection. And this is like doubly true if your waters have broken because now you don't have that barrier. You don't have um, that amniotic sac protecting your baby. So everyone who goes up in there, um, you know, uh, it's that risk of infection. 
Um, with that being said, you want to make sure that every shift you're getting cervical exams from the same person because they're subjective, right? Everyone's five centimeters is going to be a little bit different. And so if you have three different people checking you, that is the chance for three different evaluations of your cervix and how inaccurate and uncomfortable is that? And also just not productive at all. Um, but the risk of infection is still there and we're irritating your cervix. Like your cervix isn't meant to be poked and prodded on. Um, so, okay, let's talk about declining that. I think that there's space for us to realize that hospital policies have these, um, like, these check marks that they need to, to, to mark off and cervical exams every two to three hours is typically in that box. You have the right to decline or accept that. Now, personally in Tranquility with Hee Hee and in the birth lounge, we teach people to really consider if they need them more than every six hours. If it's really just to check in and it's not going to change your care plan and it's not to answer a question, there's usually no reason to do it because of that risk of infection. It's not worth the risk to get nothing out of it except to like check in. There's other ways to check in and, and determine whether you're in labor. That's something I teach on. Like, what if you are declining cervical exams? How else will I know in labor? I teach that in the birth lounge. So you can just have that conversation. You can say, um, let's say your doctor walks in the room, they slap on a glove and they go, all right, it's time for another cervical exam. It's been about two hours since the last one. And you go, oh, no, thank you. I, um, I just, I don't want any right now. I'm not feeling a cervical exam. And they go, oh, you know, it'll be really quick, I promise. Um, we can just get you laid back, we'll get a quick exam, and then it will be over before you even know it. And you're like, I really don't want one. And they say, well, it's policy, so you don't, you don't so much have a choice. And you say, well, I know that I always have a choice, and right now, I do not want a cervical exam. Um, and that's, that's kind of the end of the conversation. Um, if you want to consider other things, Something to consider is, are we going to change my care plan from this? So is this going to answer the question of whether I've made progress over the last 12 hours? Like what if your last exam was seven centimeters and then the exam before that was also seven centimeters. And so now, and you are doing exams only every six hours. So that's 12 hours and you've stayed the same at seven centimeters. Are we going to introduce Pitocin? Are you going to get an epidural and see if you can get some rest and relax your body? Are we going to, um, you know, get up and do something? To, like, let's think about how this exam is going to impact your labor going forward. If it truly is just to evaluate where you are in that moment, what does it matter? Your baby's not being born in that moment and you're coping just fine, right? Um, so answering a question or you know what, just for your mindset. So again, if you're prepared for any number either way, either disappointing or encouraging, then going into it, understanding it could sway either way. Sometimes this is exactly what people need to, to motivate themselves to get their labor going. Um, people are going to find their intrinsic motivation in different ways. That's totally up to you to find yours. Um, and so only you are going to know the answer about that. One thing to note too is the more cervical exams that you have, the faster they will be able to diagnose you with failure to progress, which I think is such a bullshit diagnosis anyway. It's never, it's not a failure on your body's part. It is either a failure in to make you feel safe, a failure in rushing your body, right? So 
Are we doing failure to progress after an induction that was elective? I mean, hey, what are the chances your body wasn't ready? We tried to coax it with medicine and it didn't work because it wasn't ready. You know, and now you've had an unnecessary C-section. Um, chances are if you had given your body another week or two, uh, it would have had your baby. So, uh, you know, think about that. The more that we intervene, the more interventions that follow that. That's the entire idea of the cascade of intervention. So it truly is um, important to limit those cervical exams. The ones that happen in late pregnancy don't tell you very much. Um, and, you know, again, they don't predict when labor is going to be, so why even have them? They can truly mess with your mindset. If you are a first-time parent, this is your first pregnancy, we expect your baby to come in that 41st to 42nd week, okay? Maybe the tail end of that 40th week, but we don't expect them by your due date. So if you're going into your 38th appointment and you're zero centimeters dilated and your cervix is only 10% of face, that makes a lot of sense. You still have three or four weeks left in your pregnancy. I am so sorry if I'm busting your bubble right now, but I don't want you to rush your baby because that is how people end up in unnecessary C-sections. We call them unnecessarians. Um, you don't need a C-section if we would just let your body do what it is designed to do. The less intervention your body has for low-risk birthers now, talking low-risk people, the better. Um, your body does know what to do for low-risk people. All right, let's talk about number two, not pushing on your back. So something that we see sometimes is people are in a rocking position for labor. Like they're in a comfortable position, they're going, they have got it going on and their providers start to notice that they are getting ready to push or they say, you know, I want to check you and they decide um, that it's time to push. And they ask the, the client to lay back on their back and do some practice pushes. This is often a way to get you into that position um, it's a submissive position where you aren't, you are, you're semi-helpless, right? You need help getting up. You can't really move super well. Um, and if they put you in syrups, you know, my friend Mandy Irby, she always, she's a labor and delivery nurse, and she actually says that in labors, you know, syrups are almost like a restraint because it does render you helpless. And so, we know that being on your back is the least helpful, the least progressive, and the least productive in birth. So just try and stay off your back. If you want to do practice pushes, you can compromise with your provider. If they want you to do practice pushes, you can do them in the position that you're in. And if they say, well, I need you on your back, you can ask them why. Um, typically, it's for the ease of the provider. You know, being on your back is so much easier for them. Um, as an obstetrician or a midwife, they should have the skills to deliver a baby in a variety of positions because being on your back is the least conducive to labor. So their only skill should not be to be delivering babies in the worst way that we know causes the most perineal um, and vaginal trauma and increases the risk of shoulder dystocia um, and all sorts of stuff. So um, you know, also super interesting uh, history behind birthing on your back. Um, that lithotomy position was actually designed by some king who like had some sort of fetish in watching births. And so it's really disgusting and, and 
like misogynistic. So it's just kind of gross. The bottom line is that a lot of people don't want to push on their backs and they're often coaxed into that position by calling it practice pushes. I'm urging you or I'm telling you, you have the right to say, I will give you practice pushes 100%, but they're going to happen right here in this position. Well, I need you on your back. Well, how come? You know, um, you know, again, being on your back restricts your pelvis from being open. And so you do run the risk of, um, you know, a number of things that you don't, not necessarily don't run the risk, but you have a much lower risk if you are birthing upright. Things like standing, um, squatting, hands and knees in like a Captain Morgan or a proposal uh, position. Um, I, even sideline, if you have a super heavy epidural or you're tired or a long labor or just instinctually you feel like getting down and lying down, try sideline rather than um, completely on your back. Um, there's a couple other tricks to to really pushing efficiently and keeping that tailbone mobile even when you are on your back and have an epidural. Um, I teach that not only in the birth launch but also in the secret sauce to pushing course so check those out too. Um, all right let's go to number three. So those late pregnancy ultrasounds. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Big babies are not the problem. Okay. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't know how to birth big babies and or our system is not set up to birth big babies. So when we're doing these extra ultrasounds in pregnancy, in late pregnancy to determine the size of baby, ACOG actually doesn't recommend that. In late pregnancy, the, the bigger your baby gets, the, the less accurate those ultrasounds are. One of the most accurate ways, actually, is maternal estimation. So just the person who is carrying that baby, estimating how big they think that baby is. More importantly, knowing how to birth big babies, including, again, upright labor. Even if you have an epidural, we want you to be able to have those mobile hips, those mobile, um, you know, the, those pelvic bones. That pelvis needs to be able to move. Um, that sacrum, the, the um, hip flexors, your pubic bone, oh my gosh, all of it, all of it, that lower back too just needs to be able to be mobile. Your baby is corkscrewing down that pelvis. Um, and so you have to make space for that. And your pelvis is designed to accommodate that. It's going to expand up to 30% in labor, but you have to facilitate that expansion, okay? And that means being upright. Late pregnancy ultrasounds, if we're checking to make sure a placenta is out of the way, that is evidence-based. Obviously, that's a medical reason. We would never want a chance uh, you having a baby if your placenta was in the way. If we're checking for, you know, true suspected um, fetal growth restriction, which is different than small for gestational age. You should know the difference. If you don't follow me on Instagram, you should go to Tranquility by Hehe um, and check out my highlights. I have one specifically about these two topics, fetal growth restriction versus small for gestational age. They are different. Um, and I talk about how we diagnose those and the accuracy of that too. So, um, you know, one thing too that your provider can do as an alternative to ultrasounds in estimating fetal weight is going to be palpating the belly to, to estimate your baby. So 
all providers, OBs and midwives, should possess that skill as well. Um, if they don't, that's just super concerning. Um, you know, fetal kicks too. So sometimes we hear providers say we want to check in on baby often and do those ultrasounds. There are other ways that we can do that as well. So fetal kicks are a great way to do that. You can check in with your baby on a Doppler and not necessarily use those ultrasounds. Um, ACOG does say to use them when medically necessary, um, but they also admit that we don't know super long-term effects of ultrasounds. No organization says that they're dangerous though. I think that's really important. People can sometimes twist that and make it feel like ultrasounds can be dangerous, and I don't know that that is necessarily true. Um, I know that there are questions about the long-term use, but right now, no organization has come out and said that it's, you know, inherently dangerous. Um, those late pregnancy ultrasounds can be very, very scary. Let's talk about one thing, too, about um, them using the ultrasounds as a way to check amniotic fluid. You should know the data around true, low, and high amniotic fluid. They're both very rare, and your amniotic fluid fluctuates. So if you're dehydrated, that is, a, that is definitely a cause for a false reading of low amniotic fluid. You should be well hydrated when you go to your amniotic fluid um, checks, um, usually a BPP. Um, you know... You've got ways to check in. So if your provider is ordering extra ultrasounds, make sure that if you have sticky feelings about them and you want to decline them, the conversation can go like this. You know, they say, yeah, we're going to um, see you back here next week and we'll just do another ultrasound. And you go, oh, really? Why do I need another one if I had one this week? And they go, oh, just to check in on the baby. And you go, oh, um okay, are you worried about something? And they say, nope. And you say, are you worried about something with me? And you say, nope. And they say, nope. And you say, are you worried about something with my placenta? And they say, nope. And you go, okay, is it standard for you to check in? And they go, oh yeah, this is senior practice. We just do it for everybody. Um, and you say, okay, I don't know that I will want that, um, but we can check the baby in other ways. Like I do fetal kicks. I'm happy to share that data with you. Um, I... Maybe you guys have Dopplers. That would be something that we can do. I don't know if I will want a full ultrasound, though, until after my due date, so in a couple weeks. Um, but we can definitely see next week. And if they come back and say anything, you can just say, like, yeah, we'll see next week. And then next week comes, and they say, like, you know, Dr. McGuire ordered this, and you say, um, no, thank you. I actually prefer to use the Doppler. Um, and then they say, oh, you know, it's standard practice for us to just get this. We, it'll be really, really quick. Also, we don't want, um, you know, we don't want anything to be wrong with like your amniotic fluid. This would help us catch that. And you can just say, I am not comfortable with doing that, but I am comfortable with doing a Doppler. You know, one of, right there, I kind of teetered on the line of almost fear-based care. It, it depends on what they follow that we don't want anything to happen. You know how I said we don't want anything to be wrong with your amniotic fluid? If they were to have taken that into a way of saying, um, you know, and then something bad might happen to your baby, that's where you instill the fear. You see, I took it in a way and we said, I don't want anything to be, we don't want anything to be wrong with your amniotic fluid and this will help us catch that. Instead of scaring them into, 
you know, something bad is going to happen to your baby, we actually say, like, this is why we are doing this test. At the end of the day, though, it is your right to say yes or no, and you do have those other options if one of those feel better aligned to you. Make sure that you're asking the questions, though, about the safety. We don't want anything to be wrong with you or your baby or your placenta, um, and then be trying to catch that, and you decline necessary um you know, ultrasounds. We also don't want you to be subjecting yourself to things that you feel manipulated or coerced into. Actually, along those same lines, one of my favorite um, phrases to kind of stop a conversation, especially if they use something like the dead baby card, like we wouldn't want anything to go wrong with your baby, or um, I'm just trying to keep your baby safe, or I just want to make sure that we're all here to keep this baby alive, right? And that one actually is a real sentence I have heard in the birth room. Um, really appalling things sometimes come out of providers' mouths. So anything that's that's like the dead baby card, my, I was taught this by a client and I will forever use it now, but she said, I will not tolerate being coerced. Um, and the provider immediately apologized and she just said, I will not. I will not put up with any sort of fear-based care like this. I expect to have the facts. I feel very confident in the knowledge that I have. Um, and I am not worried about my baby in any way. And we had just had a very great read on baby and her vitals looked great and she was unmedicated um, and she had been in the tub laboring really well and she had actually agreed to come and sit on the bed. Um, and it was just like, you know, I guess she could have said like, you have to monitor me in here and made it even more inconvenient because they would have had to get the Doppler, but she agreed to like get out of the tub move her birth environment, disrupt the pattern that she was in to make it easier on them. And her provider came in with that really snarky, like rude line. Um, but she she put him right back into her place and she said, I will not tolerate being coerced and I will forever use that. So don't be afraid to really set boundaries and you don't have to do it aggressively or ugly um, or disrespectfully. You don't have to do it confrontationally even. It can just be a very simple like, I understand what you are trying to do and I'm telling you right now, it's not going to fly. Um, and I think that is a fine conversation for one adult to have with another when you have hired and are paying this person for a service um, and it has to do with you and your baby's safety coercion and manipulation have no place in medicine and that is just the bottom line it's okay for you to stick up for yourself and your baby um, okay let's talk about number four electronic fetal monitoring so this one I all of these come with the asterisk of like low risk labors, but this especially, okay, we are talking about low risk labors. And let me tell you, I also did this on my Instagram. So again, if you don't follow me, I got good stuff over there at Tranquility by Hehe. But I just talked about my spectrum of how I personally put together my spectrum of what is normal in labor. So in America, home birth is still super regulated in terms of it is illegal in some places. Um, the things that midwives can do are very, very limited. There are some places where uh, the politics in the state are actually blocking access. One of those states being Alabama, um, 
and Dr. Stephanie Mitchell, who is a midwife down there, uh, she's trying to build the birth sanctuary in Gainesville, Alabama, but uh, the political climate down there is really working hard to work against her. Um, anywho, oh my gosh, I got so sidetracked. Okay, so right there shows you the far end of one of, of the spectrum. So take midwifery and put it on one end of the spectrum and then put hospital obstetricians on the other end of the spectrum. Now, what is normal in home birth in regulated states in America is what I have on one end of the spectrum. And then a very medicalized looking at birth through a very pathological, pharmacological, need to be controlled lens is the other end, okay? So things like low-risk laborers getting intermittent, intermittent fetal monitoring versus continuous fetal monitoring, those are two things that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Home birth midwives and midwives in a birth center and even some hospitals with midwives and obese, depending on what the hospital policy says, they will have intermittent fetal monitoring for low-risk people. However, there are still some hospitals that have continuous fetal monitoring as the norm. And we know that this is not healthy for people who are low-risk because it does cause an unnecessary spike in unnecessarians, unnecessary C-sections, because this continuous fetal monitoring actually picks up normal variations of fetal heart tones, but it flags them as abnormal. And since the medical staff is already looking at birth in a pathological, very, uh, this is dangerous lens, that one abnormal reading, instead of being able to view it as a normal variation of labor, which it is, they react, we cut somebody open, we get a baby, baby's perfect, and the surgeon goes, well, oopsie, baby's perfect, and that parent is like, oopsie, are you shitting me? No way! I just had a major abdominal surgery. Like, this is crazy now. I'm traumatized. I didn't even need this surgery. It was literally the last thing I wanted. And I cannot even believe I had that and didn't even need it. Right? That is what, that's what we're trying to prevent here. So if you are low risk and your baby is looking good, one of the best ways that you can keep up with them is by requesting a Doppler. They're going to listen to one to two contractions holding this little um, handheld little stick almost to your belly. It's got a flat piece that will hold up to your belly. They'll put some gel there just like they do for the ultrasound. You'll hear your baby's heart rate in this like little radio box looking thing. It's a handheld radio looking thing. Um, it's got like a curly little a wire from the radio box to the stick and they hold it up and it comes out of the radio box and you hear your baby's heart heartbeat and that's that. They listen to them in between contractions and during contractions. Um, now, during pushing, it's going to change to continuous fetal monitoring, but this can still be done by a handheld Doppler. 
nurses sometimes get really tiffy about this like oh we don't have a Doppler well you better find one because I'm not wearing those bands if you feel strongly about not wearing the bands and you don't want the abnormal readings of those paddles and you want something like the Doppler um, you just ask you just let them know like well you need to find one because I'm not or you know what else they can do they can use the paddle and they can hold that up and you don't have to wear the bands um, but either way uh, the nurse is probably going to have to provide one-to-one -one care and, and stay by your side for that. Um, you know, those bands can be super annoying. And for people who are birthing in a larger body, sometimes they're very uncomfortable. I've seen some of our clients have literal, like, um, almost like where it rubbed them raw. Like, not, not burns per se, but like it was just so tight on their body. Um, and the hospital didn't have any sort of equipment to accommodate that. So um, in that case, a Doppler is just much better for everybody. You do not deserve to have like, you know, bands cutting into your belly only to give you an abnormal reading. Just request a Doppler if that feels uh, better to you. Okay, cool. All right, number five. This goes along with the same thing of saying um, this applies to low-risk people and you have to remember that at any moment in your labor you can turn from low risk to moderate risk. And I'm going to talk about a specific, um, a specific situation here when we're talking about declining an IV. So let's say you are a low-risk labor, you get to the hospital, you are in triage, you have been hydrating and you have not been throwing up, you've been good to go, you feel great, you are eight and a half centimeters, you decide to stay and you just wanna get in the tub. And all of your vitals look great, your baby looks great, you actually did agree to the 20-minute reading and everything is good to go so you know you were safe when you got to the hospital. You and your baby were looking good. You had done your job at home. You got the green light. You and your partner or your doula or whoever. Ooh, maybe it's our team that's with you. And we have done our job. You got to the hospital. You and your baby are looking perfect. You can say, I don't want an IV right now. And you have a couple options about it. Here is where that spectrum I talked about earlier comes in. In home births, we don't give people preemptive IVs like that because midwives, home birth midwives, have the skill to put in an IV when needed. And you hear all these nurses and providers say like, well, you wouldn't want an emergency to happen. Well, here's the thing. I'm at a hospital and I'm birthing around a lot of people who have said, and they literally hold a job title that says, they are equipped to handle emergencies, that they have the medical training and knowledge and skill to be able to put in an IV as needed. Um, and so I think it is totally inappropriate for medical professionals put, to put the onus on patients when that is a skill they should have. Now, here is a situation where you might change your mind. Let's say you get to the hospital and you're actually six and a half, but you still decide that you're gonna stay. You get in the tub and you start vomiting and we cannot get you to stop vomiting. And you've been throwing up for four hours and you're starting to um, like not be able to keep down anything. You, you have been being able to keep down ice chips, but now even those are making you sick. You might wanna change your mind and get an IV. We wouldn't want you to get to a place where you're dehydrated, where now we actually do risk 
not being able to get an IV in you. But if you are someone who is low risk and you have hydrated, should an emergency happen, which is rare, you are around people who should be able to handle that, you know? You can always revisit it later. If you don't get in triage, if you don't get the IV in triage, you can always revisit it later. You can revisit it if you get dehydrated. You can revisit it if you get an epidural. You can revisit it if you get IV medications. You can revisit it if in postpartum there is an emergency, but also if there isn't an emergency and they just feel like you need some extra fluids postpartum or they feel like they want to push medications through an IV rather than IM, right? Um, IV being intravenous, so an IV, or IM being intramuscular, so into your muscle. All right, I got to the end and I have another one. I need to do six. So let's talk about unwanted induction. Now this is something that a lot of people find themselves facing at the end of pregnancy. So number one, I think you should pause this episode right now and go to tranquilitybyhehe.com. Go to our shop, so backslash shop, and download the induction guide. There's an evidence-based guide to induction that will teach you everything you need to know. You need to know what is an evidence-based reason to have an induction and what is a not. You need to know what is a reason for medical induction, meaning that it is medically necessary that we get you into labor or we go ahead and get your baby out because for either you or your baby or both of you, it is safer for them on the outside versus what's called an elective induction, which is where there is no medical reason. It's just uh, you chose an induction, right? You've got ways to check in on your baby First-time parents, first-time pregnant people, we know that your pregnancies are going to go into that 40th, that 41st week, even sometimes all the way to 42 weeks. Now, here's an idea, or here's a thought that I often have. In America, we let home birth go to 42 weeks. Home birth midwives can practice until 42 weeks because of the low risk. However, in the hospital... Doctors will say, well, we don't let you go past 40 or 41 weeks due to high risk. That can't be true or we wouldn't let home births go there. Our government's already so restrictive of midwifery care in our states, they're not going to let them do something reckless and dangerous. If it is done in home birth midwifery by regulated licensed midwives in regulated states, then it is safe. I promise our government is not going to let an already overly regulated industry have any sort of reckless freedom. Your due date is not an evidence-based reason to induce. Now, if you're tired of being pregnant and you are preferring an induction and you understand the risks that come along with that, I support that 100%. Sometimes you are just ready. Sometimes that is a good reason. What I don't want is for you to be manipulated or coerced into an induction that you do not want. That will only cause you birth trauma and that is just not okay with me. 
all right? So unwanted induction, let's say that your doctor comes in and says, all right, well, um, let's go ahead and get your induction set up for next week because today is your due date, congrats, you made it, and if your baby's not here by next week, then we definitely don't want them going past that. So maybe we can get your uh, induction date for 40 plus five so that by the time your baby is 41, they're here. And you say, um, you know, well, I was actually really hoping to let spontaneous labor happen um, because I'm really hoping for an unmedicated delivery. We've talked about this, you know, I think um, in my prenatals because we, when we discussed my, my birth plan, I was telling you that I want an unmedicated labor and that's still really important to me. And so, you know, induction also would knock me out of laboring at home as long as possible, which also we talked about being super important to me. And then your doctor says, well, you know, if you can, if we can get your body to go into labor before 41 weeks, then that's fine. But after 41 weeks, your, you know, risk of uh, stillborn goes up. And then you can say, yes, I understand that, but it's actually a very uh, small percentage. And that is a risk that I'm willing to take right now. Um, everything looks good with my baby. We just saw that, so that's good, and I feel great. If anything changes, I'll definitely let you know, and if at any point you obviously become concerned with my baby, please let me know. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you having this conversation. Next week, we could probably revisit this conversation and maybe put a date for induction on the calendar closer to that 42-week mark. Um, your doctor may come back and say something about hospital policy and you can just remind them, um, you know, thanks for reviewing the hospital policy. I still do understand my rights to declining and right now an induction just does not feel aligned with me and so I do not want to have this conversation. Um, but I think we might be able to revisit it next week at my 41st appointment. Um, I think it's really important for you to set these boundaries with your provider because this is a place where they can really sometimes use that fear-based care that we see. A lot of times too we see them uh, use the ARRIVE trial which uh, you should check out our podcast. I did an entire podcast about the ARRIVE trial because it deserves that. It's incredibly flawed and cannot be applied to uh, the general public. It just can't be. Um, it's good evidence for people who are open to induction, are wanting an induction, and it's um, really good comfort for people who need a medical induction close to that 39-week mark. For, but for people who don't want an induction, don't need an induction, and that doesn't feel aligned to them, it should not be used as a way to persuade them to get an unnecessary elective induction. It just shouldn't be. All right, you guys, those were my five plus one, six um, ways that you can have conversations with your provider to advocate for your birth goals. I want you to feel empowered going into your labor. I want you to feel confident and informed. I want you to feel like you have the data and the words and the knowledge to have this conversation with your provider about your birth goals. The birth lounge doors are open until September 9th at midnight Eastern time. 
you can go to thebirthlounge.com backslash join to join the best, most evidence-based, non-judgmental, give you the tools for your toolbox and let you choose what feels best to you childbirth education class. I can't wait to see you there. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.